Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, you can be seated this morning. Thank you, Vivian. Um, this is, a, this is a, a big chapter, and I love preaching expositionally because it forces us into these spaces and places in texts that typically we wouldn't go, all right? And 1 Samuel chapter 7 uh, is, 
is one of those. And so to catch uh, those of you up over the last six chapters, we have seen God in his full glory and character be revealed. His beauty, his holiness, his salvation. We have seen the people of God respond uh, mostly incorrectly to that, right? Um, and we've seen God's response to that. Uh, last week, they, they were getting somewhere at the end of chapter 6 by asking this question. And you remember, it, it, I think it's verse 20 or something like that uh, uh, from last week. Who can stand before the Lord was their question. Who can stand before this holy God by which we all answered no one. What has been proven over our time in 1 Samuel and what's proven over and over via the pages of our scripture is that no one can stand before the Lord. Well, then how do you respond to the Lord by which no one can stand before? And that is today's text. And I tipped my hand a little bit last week on this idea and this topic of repentance. And that is where we're going today to dig a lot deeper into that idea of repentance. And so I had Vivian uh, reread, even from last week, the beginning of chapter 7, which sets the context. We're coming out of a very long period of silence with the Israelites, where the ark has returned back. They've asked that, that great question, and it says in the text of verse 2 that they lamented. This is the right response from Israel, right? What is lamentation? You have a whole book of your Bible called Lamentation. It's, it's coming before the Lord broken, wounded, hurting. And so they are bringing their brokenheartedness to the right place, to, to the Lord. And then what breaks silence is the voice of Samuel. And Samuel has been quiet up to this point in the whole ark narrative. And we, we kind of were like, where's Samuel? You know, week after week, we'd be like, where's Samuel? Where's the voice of Samuel? Well, by and large, he was marginalized. He was quieted. He was ignored, right? And now his voice breaks forth there. And you see it in, in verse 3 of chapter 7. And his voice doesn't break forth in flattery, doesn't break forth in encouragement after this years long of lamenting, right? His voice doesn't break forth in seven steps to, to building back a broken relationship. He doesn't, uh, you know, break forth in, in, okay, here's five healthy ways to have a better life. No, he breaks forth with a very clear and very direct, and I would say this is one of the clearest passages in 1 Samuel, by the way, a very clear and very direct if and then statement. Right? Some of you are in school. You know those if and then statements? If this is true, then this happens. Or if this happens, then this happens. Right? That's what takes place here. Look in your text, okay? Verse 3, And Samuel said to the house of the Lord, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then... Dot, dot, dot. If, then. And Samuel's going, Okay, Israel, if this is what's really happening, if this lament is really true... If this is really honest, then action is required. To cultivate that brokenness into a reality, it will require something of you. It will require effort on their part. Now, as Protestants, maybe even those in maybe more of a theological, uh, a reformed theological lane, we hear effort and we're like, what? Now I want to quote the great Dallas Willard on this. And it is very pointed and very true. The gospel, hear me, the gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning. 
what Samuel is calling Israel to do is to not, he's not calling them to earn their salvation. They are God's covenant people. God chose them, right? He chose them. What he's calling them toward is the effort that God calls all of his people toward. Calling them into something that they are to cultivate, that they are to build. This is no doubt a corporate call for repentance. And it comes by way, after the then statement, by a corporate turning away from other gods. Look at it. The very first thing after then. Then put away the foreign gods. This is a call to whole devotion. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods. And listen to me, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And while this may be something new for Samuel to say, this is not something new in the pages of our scripture. This is not even new up to Samuel's life, right? This statement reflects Deuteronomy 6.13. I'm not going to read that but it talks about coming back to the Lord, returning and serving God, this, this effort in serving him, which interestingly, that's the same passage Jesus uses, okay? Our savior, Jesus in the New Testament, when he's faced with the temptation in the desert by Satan, he uses Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 about serving the Lord alone. Or how, how about this one? And I will read it from Joshua 24, 14 and 15. You all, some of you maybe have this on the walls of your house, Right? Think, hear the effort language in this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. This is this whole life uh, devotion. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as, but as for me and my house, this Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. And so he, though, is calling the people, though, very clearly to what? A choice. You're either going to serve those gods or you're going to serve the one true God. You must make a choice. And if you choose to serve the one true God, here's what it looks like. It looks like putting off or putting away all of those other false or fake gods. And, they, and, they, and here's what's interesting about this. Um, biblically, they never dismiss foreign or false gods as not being real. You know what I mean by that? It's not like, hey, that, 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 that's not a God, right? They're going, no, that's just a fake God. That's just a false God in terms that you should not uh, gravitate your life or worship it. There is one true God who deserves all of worship. Oh, that's a God. It just is a subservient God, and it holds no place and no water with the one true God. And so even in our lives, when we look at these things that have gravitational pull for us, they are real, and they pull us, and they draw us. They, they call for our worship, Right? But it never ends the way we think it will. It never terminates on, 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 on what we think it will with satisfaction and joy. It ends in things that are fleeting. And so the call here is to return with their whole heart to the Lord. Right? If the one true God is your God and you're going to live for him, the only call we have, the only thing that is, that is deserving of his power and his glory is an undivided whole heart devotion, which requires us putting away all other things. Uh, we use this phrase around here at the Parks Church quite a bit, and we should probably keep it in front of you more than we do, but we say we, we are a community of whole life disciples. 
Whole life disciples being transformed by the way of Jesus. How many of you have heard us say that before? And for some of you, you, you're like, whole life disciples? Like, isn't that a little redundant? And to be fair, it is. Like, there is no such thing as a half-life disciple, right? A quarter-life disciple, right? There's no such thing. Biblically, like, it has no framework for a half-life disciple. However, I believe that in the church in the West, we have accommodated half-life discipleship or quarter-life discipleship, or eighth-life discipleship, or just a tad of discipleship enough to escape hell. That's not what the Bible calls. And that is not what 1 Samuel chapter 7 is calling from Israel, or thus us, the church, this morning. Now hear me, there is a difference between works-based righteousness, which is not this, and covenantal obedience. This is covenantal obedience. This is as the covenantal people of God, God is calling them into an obedient relationship with him, to follow him. Now, need I remind us that God alone saves. God alone justifies. God alone is victorious solely on his own will and his own power, right? We've seen that in 1 Samuel chapter 5. How did, how did God defeat the Philistines in chapter 5? Was it because he raised up Israel and they, they won the battle? No, remember, they just got their tails kicked and God went in and he defeated them all on their own. But then in calling us, hear me, but then in calling us to himself, in calling Israel to himself, he calls them to something. He calls them to cultivate it. He calls them to work at the relationship with that holy, grace-driven effort. Namely, that effort is this. Repent and obey. Repent and obey. Now let's look at that, that first statement, put away foreign gods. Part of devotion to God is reflected by not only what you choose to put on, but also what you choose to put away. And when you choose to put things away, let me tell you and warn you right now, there is a great cost to putting them away. It's a choice a necessary cost to be in right relationship with God. I was reminded this morning as I was studying my notes of all the times in 1 Samuel that God makes it abundantly clear that his glory will not be shared. Not only will his glory not be shared, his power is not going to be shared with some other God, with some pagan or foreign God. But let's just be really honest for a moment when we think of this idea of putting away or repenting, that process can be very difficult. True? I, ho I hope you're nodding your head because I'm nodding my head. Um, sin misdirects us in our lives in so many ways. For the longest time, um, I viewed repentance as essentially, I messed up. I sinned, and that sin was, was this. It was this, this, this thing that I did, right? And I could identify it pretty easily. And I would confess it, and I would repent, and I would turn from it, and that's how I was taught. But then as I began to grow and mature in my faith, I realized that there are far, there are far more things going on in my life than these just one-off failures. There are my motives, my intentions, my thoughts, my heart pulls in certain directions. And I realized in those moments that repenting is far more multifaceted than just, you messed up here, turn from that and go. But it is a whole life surrender and turn day by day by day. 
that the Holy Spirit taking all of those misdirected loves and worships in my life and turning them right like a big cruise liner, slowly turning them back to surrender and worship of the one true God. If we just view repentance as I messed up here, I confessed it, and I bring it before the Lord, we are short-circuiting what repentance actually is and the full and complete work the Lord wants to do in our hearts and our lives. You see, Samuel could have pointed to many things Israel was doing wrong, couldn't he have? Stop doing this. Stop treating the sacrifices in the temple like this. I mean, we went through some of them. But what is the first thing he goes at? Look at it. Put away the foreign gods. First and foremost, repentance is always a change in worship. It is not, first and foremost, a change in your behavior. We exchange our worship before we change our behavior. For far too long in my life, I looked at repentance as, okay, I need to change my behavior. I need to modify this. I just need to do this and and submit it and surrender to God because it's not pleasing to God. And what ultimately happened? I ended up leaning on my self-sufficiency to make those changes and not on the Holy Spirit and true change that God brings about in our hearts. I'm convinced if Samuel would have just been like, here's the laundry list of changes, Israel would have been like, good, we're good with those things. We're good with lists, all right? And we'll do them, we'll knock them out of the park. They probably would have became prideful about it and be like, we did all of it, whoa, you know? Why do I know that about Israel? Because it's my heart. It's what I do with the list. And what God is trying to do is something so much deeper. He's trying to get to the core, the root of who we are. He goes, the root of who you are, Kyle, is this. You are an idolater. Your worship is terminating on so many other things. And he goes, no, I want your worship to terminate alone on me. Listen, make no mistake. Our worship is the fuel for our behavior, right? The things that flow out of what you do that are sinful and break God's heart, right? That is just fuel from what you actually worship. And repentance isn't just about um, fleeing from, from, from bad behavior or what you're doing. Far more important, repentance about, is about whom you're fleeing to. That's what's most important. Not what you're fleeing from your behavior, but whom you're fleeing to. What good is it for you to run from your sin if you're running to your own resources in the end? And that is my fear with so many people in here. Is that yes, you're like, I'm running from my sin. But where you're running is to your own well to drink from. And God's going, no, I'm trying to get you to turn from your sin and ultimately turn to me. Because it's that well you'll drink from and you'll never thirst again. Some of you are pros at behavior modification. But you're still an idolater. Your worship is still not terminating on the king of kings and lord of lords. And Samuel goes, listen, as clear as he can, he says, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Put away the foreign gods. Direct your heart in one place. And the result at the end of verse 4, if you have your text open, we haven't made it very far, very quickly. It says, he will deliver you. He'll deliver you. That's the promise. The Lord will deliver you. And then from the rest of the text, we see the scene play out. And I love it. It's a beautiful scene, um, full of places and spaces that we live, to be honest. And so the action of repentance looks like this. Look, verse 5 and 6. Um, the Israelites listen to Samuel. 
and they do something very interesting. They, they, they pour water on the ground. Did you see that or hear that when Vivian read it? They pour out water on the ground. Now, we aren't entirely sure what that means, right? You could look at commentators and you get a bunch of different uh, reactions to that. There's not some ritual or, or something they're following there. The closest that commentators get to is like Lamentations in your Bible, Lamentations chapter 2, which essentially says that they, they poured out their hearts like water unto the Lord. So that, that could be what's taking place here is Israel is just pouring out their hearts. But I think the author is making this point even more deeply than that, just say they were pouring out their hearts. Water for the Israelites, one, would have been something that they went to a foreign god to ask for, that they would have had a foreign god for. But two, water was a prized commodity. Rain, water, it would have been something that God alone brought to them or God alone chose not to bring to them. And so what they're doing in taking this security, taking this comfort, they're going, Lord, it's poured out before you. Lord, we trust you. Lord, you are in control. Lord, you're center of our lives. Lord, you're center of our nation. Everything we are have and have gravitates around you. Here it is in, 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 in a display, right? Think about the, the woman in the New Testament with Jesus, right? The alabaster box. Remember that, that perfume, the greatest possession she had, all the value. What does she do? She throws it. She breaks it at his feet in this extravagant worship. The religious leaders, what do they do? They rebuke her. So can you imagine this scene with the water going, hey, pour it out before the Lord. The religious of the crowd are going, well, have you calculated that actually it hasn't rained in the last one? You know, like, and they're going, we trust the Lord. He's our God. This is the one true God. Our nation gravitates around him. He's the one alone who has the power. Now, I think there are many of you in this room this morning, the Lord may be going, pour out the water. Pour out the water this morning security, comfort, those things that you are clinging to, right? He's going, pour it out in devotion and worship to me this morning. Not so that I'll save you. It's so that you understand my heart, so that you'll see my care, so that you'll see my grace, so that you'll see my mercy and my provision in a whole new way. But they didn't just pour out water. They also fasted. Do you see that? Israel fasted, which was meant to communicate to God that he was better than any cravings or desire they had physically. Spiritually, they were turning their affections holy to Jesus. And they wanted their whole lives, they wanted the whole nation to be part of this turning. And then what happens? Verse 7. The Philistines show back up. The enemy. Wait a minute. Like, come on, everything's going so well. Oh, it's about to get even better. You see, true repentance and a true life of faith is never without testing and never without attack. And I'm going to talk more about the test here in a little bit. Um, but maybe you even um, experienced that this morning, right? Like, why are my kids the hardest to get dressed on Sunday mornings? Right? Like, the most vulnerable car ride you will have with your spouse is to church or away from church, right? Like those moments after where you just, you, you just in a worship service and you're like, yes, I got it. And then you get in the car with your family and you're like, everybody shut up. <laughs> right? We're all going to limit. No, you're just like, you're just going to Why? It's because the enemy's like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Worships are being refigured. Wait, 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 wait. Let's start poking on that bear a little bit. Let's start testing it. You see, and, 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 and the, the Israelites know this. They see the test coming, Right? And what do they do? Rightly, what do they do? They go before Samuel and they say, Samuel, mediate for us. 
cry out to the Lord that he would save us. And so verse 9, Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Something that you will see over and over again in your Bible is this. It's a, it's a cry and save paradigm. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saved them. They cried out to the Lord, and he heard them. Listen, the cry of Israel is a recognition that self-sufficiency won't cut it. Self-sufficiency won't lead to flourishing. Even when the motive is sin removal, self-trust is still a sin. Self-sufficiency, no matter what the reason, is the essence of sin. And Israel is demonstrating we can't do this on our own. We tried. Remember chapter 4? We tried. Lord, only you can. Samuel, cry out, you're our mediator. And the Lord saves them. And while making the offering, verse 10, the enemy comes against them. But here we go. The active agent in the whole story, the Lord thundered against them and threw them into confusion. That word confusion, remember from last week, the echoes of the Exodus story? That word confusion is the same thing that happened to the Egyptians as they were at the Red Sea. It says that the Lord threw them into a confusion. It's the exact same thing. Now, many times I have heard this text preached and the text is preached through the lens of victory. Like, the Lord, you know, he's going to work a victory for you. He's going to work a victory for you. You can see it, the Israelites, the Philistines, he, he defeated them. He's going to work a victory for you. I think that is selling this text a little short and shallow. The Lord is doing something far deeper than working a military victory for Israel or winning a battle in your life. He is testing them so that their faith and their repentance is proved to be true or false. You don't believe me? Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 7. Look at this. So that, this is New Testament, by the way. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. Three words there. Tested, genuineness, faith. How do I know that my faith, your faith, is real, genuine? tested. The testing, here's what it does. It proves more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ so that it may result in what? One word? Worship. God, you've proven. We sang it over and over. You're faithful. That's the depth of what God is trying to show in this text that he meets true repentance and true faith in that place, and it ends in what? Real worship. It, re it ends in what? Real, uh, uh, genuine faith. In verse 11, this is an interesting uh, uh, verse for me. It says, Then the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them. So God had essentially won the battle, right? He'd them, thrown them into confusion. The battle's won, but yet, notice, the men of Israel still had a job to do. There is still participation taking place in here in what God is working in terms of victory. So God regenerates hearts, but those hearts mourn what sin has done to their relationship, and then we contend with the present state of things in our heart and participate in the work God has called us to. Does that make sense? God does not call us away from effort. God does not just go, okay, you just kind of sit back, you know, and passively receive. He goes, no, I have saved you by grace, no effort, no, no earning on your, your own. 
but now I have called you into the work, the work of being obedient to the Holy Spirit, being obedient to my word, being obedient to my voice as I call you to contend for the things that God calls us to contend for. And what happens? The victory comes. And Samuel recognizes the victory and and he brings in this, this stone, and the stone is called Ebenezer. Ebenezer just means stone of help, okay? And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Uh, we, we sing that song, Come Thou Fount. You ever sing that song, Come Thou Fount? And in that song um, is a line about, here I raise my Ebenezer. And I'll get questions about that all, all the time. It's like, what, what are we, the only Ebenezer I know is Scrooge. And so like, what are we saying in this really, this old song? Um, this is what we're saying. I, I raise my, my need for help. I, I raise to you this, this idea that God, you, you alone are my help. And so this stone was meant to call to mind to Israel that, that they were defeated when they trust in themselves. They were defeated when they attempted to objectify God. Remember that in chapter four? And they were delivered when they trusted in God alone. And the same is true for us. Now, yeah, I have time. Um, this is not the first place in 1 Samuel up to this point Ebenezer's been used. If you remember in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, look at it, I think it's in verse 2. The place where the Israelites were camped out before they went into the battle with the Philistines where they got their tails kicked, um, that place was called what? Ebenezer. Now, what the author is doing here is he's essentially bookending the narrative with Ebenezer at the beginning and Ebenezer at the end. The Ebenezer in defeat and the Ebenezer in victory. It's like Samuel is well aware that we all have a tendency to objectify certain things about God or God himself. That in turn, we can, and the Israelites could have even objectified repentance Oh, now we know how we get victory. We repent. We lament. We do, we do this activity and this, this action, da, 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 just like they objectified the ark, if you will. And Samuel is reminding them to be careful not to believe and see repentance as the way of beating back their enemies in this life. Samuel is making sure that they don't objectify repentance, that they don't make it seem like this is the magic formula to get God to do what you want him to do. Samuel, it appears, is really wanting them to not fall prey to objectification after a win, which is the tendency, which is the struggle potentially. So he makes a stone and makes a note in books in these chapters. But the story actually ends, I think, two verses later on this note. And this is the result of true repentance and true faith in our lives. Look at it at the end of 14. Three words. And in the area, there was peace. In an area that was riddled with disorder, in battles, a nation riddled by sin and objectification, the Bible here clearly states that there was shalom. Peace. Hope in the midst of defeat and struggle, suffering that God has worked now toward peace, toward wholeness, toward flourishing. Because that is what God does. Look at me. That is what our God does. He works all things together for his glory and the good of those who love him 
Now, for some of you, you're walking through suffering and pain, immense pain right now. And that statement, even that verse to some of you, maybe it, it seems so trite. And I get it. And this morning, I'm not going to try to articulate a convincing answer, try to give you a, a theological discourse on why it's right. In those moments of pain, for those of you who are hurting like that, it's something you have to experience. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to press into you, and then you'll believe it. Even with this idea of repentance, hear me, I could give you five different definitions, really good definitions, by the way, of repentance, of what it is, what it looks like, exercises to participate in but you still wouldn't believe it. The only way, hear me, the only way you will get a hold of what God intends for repentance is if you experience it. If you come to that place like Israel where you were broken before the Lord and there you will find in your brokenness his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness will wash over you. And then you'll go, ah, now I get what repentance is. Now I get what Israel was experiencing in this joy and this shalom. And so I want to I close in this way. Um, and this will be a little bit of a longer close for us. Um, what do we need to put away? What do we need to put away corporately? This is a corporate call to repentance. What do you need to put away individually, right? We'll never be corporately what we're not individually, right? I don't think we'll be a corporate body captured by repentance if we're not that individually. What do we falsely worship? What, what are the roots? Well, in my own self-examination, they're self-sufficiency. They're that I'm really good at setting up boundaries and disciplines for myself. Void of Reliance, dependence. And that just feeds a need for control. Or how about that root of security? I must feel secure above all else. And these things give me security. How about the fear of man over the fear of God? How about the root of autonomy? We live in one of the most affluent places in the world. And that affluence affords us autonomy. We get to do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it. And this then works itself out. Because if we're not careful, we'll just point to symptoms, right? This will work itself out in things like how we handle money. How we handle our, our time. How we treat our spouses and our kids. People want to talk about the idolatry of worshiping kids. There's something that lies way below that or money, there's something that lies below that. This plays itself out in how we treat the church, how we treat one another. I don't know what that is for you. The Holy Spirit does, and I trust him. Eugene Peterson, um, in one of his books, Long Obedience, in the same direction, said this, the first step toward God is a step away from the lies of the world. 
It is a renunciation of the lies we have been told about ourselves and our neighbors and our universe. The usual biblical word describing the no we say to the world's lies and the yes we say to God's truth is repentance. It is always and everywhere the first word in the Christian life. Is that true for you? It's the first word in the Christian life? Repentance? And he goes on to say, repentance is not an emotion. It's a decision. It's a decision of whole life surrender. It's a decision like the same one the Israelites were faced with, a putting away, a putting away of every day the lies we believe and run toward. The lies we believe about ourselves, the lies we believe about others, the lies we believe about God's created world. Putting those away. That is what it looks like to repent, to turn. Now, I want to give a warning as we enter into a time of communion and thus repentance. That I think something that has gripped not only this community, but a community at large in the church is this idea of therapeutic confession. Therapeutic confession masquerading as real transparency. As if this, this just letting it out there is the same thing as repentance. Confession, hear me, is part of repentance, without a doubt. However, confession alone is not repentance. I struggle with X. Here's how I struggle with X. Here's why I struggle with X. Here's when I struggle with X. We've got a PhD in being able to talk about and analyze and articulate our struggles on the surface. But potentially, we have neglected to do the necessary and hard work. And what I'd say, even in that idea of therapeutic confession, is that that is superficial and really shallow. And I've been guilty of this, even, even as your pastor, to, to maybe make indictments or claims against the church of things that are wrong or errors, right? Listen, anybody can do that with eyes. Anybody can do that who just opens their eyes. The hard work is actually going, yes, that is a sin, that is an issue, let's repent. Let's go deeper than just confessing that that's an issue and come before the Lord with broken and contrite hearts and go, Lord, heal us. You've wounded us so that you can heal us. And that's the hard work that the Spirit is offering and wanting to do today. We stop short so oftentimes in receiving the joy and the freedom that Christ is offering because we don't take it far enough in our lives. We've replaced what the, the complete work of the Spirit and sanctification with the incomplete work of identification. Gavin uh, Ortland, um, author and, and, and pastor, I believe he's pastoring now, um, put some really good words around repentance. He said it's a, it's a counterintuitive instinct or feeling, or to use Peterson's words, it's a counterintuitive decision. It's like learning to use a muscle we didn't know we had for the first time. Or better yet, finally relaxing a muscle we've always kept so tight. You want to know what muscle we've kept tight? is defensiveness. We're defensive. It's a kind of paradox, he says. An effort at relaxing, a striving to ceasing, a struggle to give up. Somebody like, Kyle, stop giving me quotes. Give me the Bible. Give me the Bible. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> Isaiah 30. You want the Bible? Here it is. This is what the sovereign Lord, the holy God of Israel says. You ready? In repentance and rest is your salvation. 
in quietness and trust is your strength. Read that. In repentance and rest. Those seemed, for me, walking with Jesus for 38 years, those seemed at odds with each other. And here Isaiah is going, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord is speaking here. No, it's in repentance and rest. It's actually in repentance that you'll find rest. In quietness and trust. But in Isaiah's day, you would have none of it. God help us to not be like the Israelites in this. Where the Lord is going, it's in repentance and rest. It's in quietness and trust that you'll see me, that you'll know me, that you'll experience me, maybe for some of you, the first time. May you not look at our congregation and go, but you didn't want any of it. Listen, this morning, he's, he's inviting us He's inviting us in to that via repentance and rest. Stop your striving and start striving for the right thing. It's a paradox. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense until we come. And, and for those of you that know me, you know like I, I like structure. Um, but we're going to have an unstructured close to this service because I think that's what's fitting. We're still going to take communion, but we're going to take it. You're going to come get it, I should say, when you see fit, not when a host dismisses you. We're going to spend some time before the Lord just asking him to examine for us not to just confess our need, but to repent and allow the Spirit to turn and reorient our disordered worship and our disordered lives. And then when you're ready, you can come get the elements. And some of you, and, and this isn't judgment, some of you will not take the elements with us this morning. And that's okay. The Lord's doing a deep work in you. Others of you, you might be ready now and you can come to the tables and please do that. Others of you, you need to take a pause and a moment here to make sure that Isaiah 30 is not true. Or God's calling us to repentance and you're going, I want none of it. Let me pray for us and then we can continue to seek the Lord and as you see fit, come to the, the table and grab the elements. Holy Spirit, um, We just sang it. Do whatever you want. Lead us, guide us, draw us in to your presence. Father, forgive us <laughs> for thinking that repentance is actually the destination when it's a doorway in how we see and sense your joy and your love, where we were met with your grace and your mercy. Lord, it is your kindness this morning that's drawing us to repentance. It's not the, the singing of songs. It's not the eloquence of a sermon. 
It is your word and your kindness drawing us. And so let us as a church respond faithfully. Give us the faith to respond. Do whatever you want. 